This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dr. Rafael Paleo is a clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine. He is also the author of How to Sleep, which comes out in December. So naturally, today we're talking about sleep, but keep listening. I promise it's fascinating. Dr. Paleo answers all our questions about sleep, how much to sleep, how to sleep, and what actually happens when we do sleep. We talk about clock genes and circadian rhythms, sleep disorders, and what happens when we're dreaming. We also talk about sleep disorders with kids. We learn why sleeping is inherently the most dangerous thing we do, that we can't actually catch up on sleep, and that sleep is a learned behavior that depends on our environment, and our sleep troubles are not always what they seem. People talk about the functions of sleep. People, the simplest thing people can say is that it rest, it's restorative. It restores us. But then when you ask what's it actually restoring, people kind of scratch their heads. With that, I'll let Dr. Rafael Paleo take it from here. Well, thank you for your time. I obviously sleep has become, you know, a dominant theme. Well, it was emerging as as something we needed to think differently about, I guess, in the last 10 years. But now, particularly in the midst of this pandemic, I think people are really putting a critical eye toward how they're sleeping, how they should be sleeping, how much how much sleep they should get all the things and understanding that it's one of the linchpins of a balanced immune system as well. So how do you feel like the bell of the ball? I mean, do you feel like for a while no one was paying enough attention and now it's the only thing people want to talk about? We said for a long time <laughs> that sleep is like the Rodney Dangerfield of medical specialties. When I first started, they got no respect. And I started in 
1984, started heading around the sleep lab. And I was the first person in my family to go to medical school. And people were saying, what are you doing? You could be a surgeon. You could be so many other things. What are you doing to do sleep? It seemed like a ridiculous thing to do. And I do remember being laughed at, talking at conferences about the importance of sleep, in particular, cardiology conference. Not, not uh, in a figure of speech, laughed at when I talked about the importance of sleep um, for heart health. And now, among our biggest sources of referrals are cardiologists because they realize the importance of sleep in the treatment of both hypertension and atrial fibrillation. So now it's almost routine for us to get patients from cardiology, but it wasn't always like that. So I have seen the pendulum swing uh, very strongly like that. And somebody told me that once you get involved in sleep, you almost become the most popular person at a cocktail party because everybody sleeps. <laughs> and when I first started doing sleep medicine, I was very proud of it, and I still am very proud of it. And I would talk to anybody who wanted to talk about sleep, about their sleep. But I soon learned if I was in a social environment to keep my mouth shut because the insomniacs would come to me like sharks to blood. I'd be surrounded, people trying to get advice about their sleep. At the same time, it's just the wrong environment to talk about something so intimate, like sleeping, yeah. because everybody's like eavesdropping. Everybody wants to hear what they have to say. And people want to pretty much be told, well, that they've done everything and nothing can be done and they're stuck with it, which is not true. But that's what they're expecting you to say. Almost everybody gets better. As a sleep doctor, it's a fun gig because almost everybody improves. It's unusual for somebody not to get better with a sleep problem. And what, like, how does that start? I've always been an amazing sleeper. I love sleep. I slept so deeply. The only disappointment really of becoming a parent is the way that I am a much lighter sleeper now. And I'm hoping eventually I'll go back to how I used to be, which was catatonic. I won't. No, damn it. No, no you're um, not. No, it's not going to happen. You... No, but I, I, um, oh, I've always loved, always loved to sleep and get like eight or nine hours. But what? How, how do we get disordered? Is it that that so for so long there was this idea, this idea of like, oh, I'll sleep and I'm dead, and that we sort of started destroying our circadian rhythms, or is it our caffeine? Like, what's what's happening? Why do people become disordered? You know, it's funny when I hear people say, I love to sleep, it's kind of a nod term to say you love to sleep because nobody ever says they're fond of oxygen, right? <laughs> and and it's, it's the same thing. I mean, of course you love to sleep. It's a basic biological drive. And one of the earliest sleep researchers had a quote that I, that I like to use. And he said, if sleep has no function, it's the biggest mistake evolution ever made. Mm. Because sleep makes no sense. The more logical you are, the more analytical you are in your approach to your sleep, the more you're going to screw it up. Logic is for us not to sleep at all. If you're a predator and want to go capture your prey, the easiest time to capture your prey would be while it's sleeping. So you would think that God, Mother Nature, evolution, natural selection, however you want to think about these things, some animal would have shown up that did not need to sleep. But we all sleep. And pretty much every every single organism that we know of has some type of basic receptivity cycle. Even single-cell organisms seem to have some version of sleeping. So whatever sleep's functions are, and functions with an S, plural, are so crucial to our existence that you put your life at risk of being attacked in order to obtain that sleep. And all mm-hmm. animals adapt to this need for sleep in order to fit into the biological niche. And the best example of this, when I talk to kids especially, I work a lot with children, is I tell them about how dolphins sleep. And you may know this, but dolphins have the ability to sleep one half of their brain at a time. One half of their brain sleeps, the other half stays awake. So the animal can swim and sleep at the same time. The dolphin retain its need for oxygen and retain its need for sleep, even despite greatly having changed over time. 
And seals, we live in California, seals on the beach, they sleep like humans do, both half the brain at the same time when they're on the water, when they're on the beach, but when they're in the water, they sleep like the dolphins do, half the brain at a time. So again, the way they sleep adapts to the biological environment. So when it comes to us and, and being parents, when we talk to children about their sleep, sleeping is actually a learned behavior. People, Children are taught how to sleep. There's a biological need for sleep. And that's kind of a funny thing to think about teaching a child to sleep because we've been teaching, we've been sleeping longer than we've been eating. We've been sleeping longer than we've been breathing because pe- babies sleep in the womb before they ever have any food and before they, they breathe any oxygen. So despite this natural biological rhythm of sleeping, they have to, still have to be taught how to sleep. So sleeping is something that you're taught how to do. And when you have little kids, little boys and little girls, the amount of sleep problems they have is about the same. They don't have really big biological, sexual, gender differences with little kids as far as sleep disorders. But it starts to change in adolescence. And teenage girls are more likely to have insomnia than teenage boys. And maybe menstrual related. But we get another surge of, of people who have sleep problems who become first-time mothers. A lot of first-time mothers have it. And then... Uh, the other big surge is after menopause, and definitely menopause plays a role, and hormone changes play a role in how people sleep. So if you, if you pe- listeners out there or people you know who have gone through menopause, the poor sleep is such a common thing for them that it's kind of not even mentioned as a symptom. It's just sort of understood that they're not going to sleep well. The truth is, if you are a light sleeper yourself as a mom, and at least we've never met, so I don't know your situation, but if, if you have a bed partner, whoever your bed partner is, probably, that person probably sleeps very well compared to you because you only get one light sleeper per couple is what happens, um, <laughs> right? So, yeah. So what will happen is, let's, you know, and there's all kinds of families, so I'll just generalize. Let's say it, it, it's a man and a woman, and of course, obviously, I'm generalizing, but one of, early on in the relationship, you tend to both go to bed at the same time and get out of bed at the same time. But early on, you realize that one of you sleeps a little less than the other, a little lighter than the other. And my advice to anybody listening is if you're in a new relationship, pretend you're the deep sleeper. Because what's going to happen is over time, the difference becomes augmented, especially if you start a family. Because the deep sleeper, if they hear their baby cry, they open their eyes and they quickly slam them shut as fast as they can and pretend they're sleeping and wait. And then the light sleeper knows that this person's not going to get up, so they have to sleep even lighter. So over the years, the difference between the light sleeper and the deep sleeper seems to be more, more marked. And you see this with older couples. I work a lot with families. And you'll always see usually one light sleeper per, per, per couple only. You don't get two light sleepers. And I've seen couples where they've changed partners. The deep sleeper becomes a light sleeper because the other person takes on that role. And when you talk with little kids, you talk to parents, they describe their children coming into the bedroom, for example. Again, generalizing, there's two moms and dads, all kinds of combinations, obviously. But the mom will say, well, the kid comes to my side of the bed. And they say, well, why come he doesn't go to the other, to the other parent's side of the bed? He says, oh, because he won't wake up. He won't do anything about it. He goes, well, there you go. There's the issue, right? The child has learned whose side is going to be more responsive to them. So normal human sleep, we have to be vigilant to the outside world. And... How deep your sleep is depends on the environment that you're in. For example, let's, let's again, let's talk about couples for a little bit because it's about parenting in, in a sense. If you have one member of the family, let's just make believe you're with your partner, your significant other, whoever that is, and it's a perfect night for sleeping. Everything is just right. You're about to drift off to sleep. Everything is just right. As you're about to drift off to sleep, your partner turns to you or you turn to your partner and say, hey, um, did you turn off the stove? And did you lock the front door? And your partner says to you, I think so. What's going to happen? Only two things can happen. Either you're going to get up and go check, or your partner's going to get up and go check. Or as you're about to check, your partner says, no, no, you worry too much, keep me company. 
If you lay long enough, eventually you're going to fall asleep. But after a few hours, you're going to pop awake because you have to be vigilant to the outside world. Sleeping is inherently the most dangerous thing we do as animals. So if we have to be vigilant to anything in our environment, we're going to sleep lighter. That's what happens with parenting. The ability to push off sleep is built into our brains. How can we be eight-hour sleeping mammals or nine-hour sleeping mammals if, if, if we have to feed babies every two to four hours? Unless we're biologically built to avoid sleeping. Got, the ability to push off sleep is built into our brains. The problem is when people have trouble going back to sleep. The real issue for most people is not that they they may complain of waking up, but that's not the real issue. The real problem is they can't fall back asleep. And ultimately, the, what people are really complaining about is not how they're sleeping. It's how they feel when they're awake, which they attribute to their sleep. So even though I'm a sleep doctor, what I'm really focusing on is how people feel when they're awake. And if I can help you sleep better, then the hope is that you're going to sleep better. You're going to feel better when you're awake. No, that was a long answer to your short question. I'm sorry. Did I no, even no, answer it? <laughs> no, you, def- you and you described my entire relationship with my husband because that is those we have been conditioned to be that way. And I know I'm not the only mother who feels this way where it's like, how convenient that you didn't hear anything that happened last night. But I'm hoping at some point, I guess it maybe not, but I'm hoping at some point we can we can swap sides. Swap sides? So, yeah, swap you know, sides. It's interesting, you know, because you said yeah. swap sides. One of the things about about this, the need for sleep is biological, but the way sleep is learned, I said earlier, and a good example is sides of the bed, right? Your first night, you, you shared a bed with that person. One of you picked this out of the bed. And the other one just picked whatever was left behind. You're just happy to be together, so you didn't care what side you got. But once you picked that side of the bed, that became the side of the bed officially for you for the rest of your, your relationship, pretty much. You know, people don't switch sides of the bed for the hell of it. It's very unusual. And when you travel, you go somewhere different. You go when you go to the hotel room, for example. You just put your stuff, your belongings, on, on your side of the bed. It's not even not even discussed. And actually, couples who who've been together for a long time, you can tell when they come to the sleep lab, because when they come to the sleep lab, only only one person sleeps in the bed, but they still stay stay on their side. You would think you have a nice bed. You stay you sleep in the middle of it. They go to one side of the bed only. And yeah. actually, when couples actually when one of them travels you still tend to sleep on your side of the bed. And if you slide over to the other person's side, it's almost viewed as an invasion of privacy for you to sleep on with their pillow or their side of the bed, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, but that's how it is. It turns out that older couples rarely switch sides of the bed. Uh, people rarely switch sides of the bed, except older couples when they're traveling because one of them has an agreement that they sleep closer to the bathroom. And that's pretty much the only reason that they'll switch sides. So one of them can get faster to the bathroom. That's about it. So when you said swap sides, I mean, I know you meant, you know, who's the like sleeper, yeah. who's the deep sleeper. But just for the hell of it, swap sides of the bed, see what happens. You may feel very strange. It is. No, it's true. I mean, I I guess we just like habit. I mean, is that is that it? It's a ritual or does it actually condition the way that we we sleep or is it just about routine? I think it's about safety. I think sleeping, as I mentioned earlier, is inherently the most dangerous thing we can do. So... The reason that, for example, children like the same routine every night, the reason we give kids routines is because it's monotony. And monotony involves safety. We don't fall asleep because we're bored. Boredom does not make anybody sleepy. If you get a full night of sleep on a regular basis, when you're bored, you just stay awake. You you know, you misbehave in school when you're bored. Little kids, when they're bored, they misbehave. If you fall asleep when you're bored, it means you were sleep deprived to begin with. And if sleeping is the most dangerous thing you can do as an animal and you're sleep deprived, your brain will decide when is it convenient to sleep in part when it feels safest. Mm. And having the same routine implies safety. 
We don't mm. sleep well in states of uncertainty. You'll always get some sleep, but you're going to sleep very lightly. So that's why we like these routines. I mean, we like doing the same thing over and over and over again because it implies safety. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So what happens, you know, and I, one, I, I can't be alone, my family can't be alone in terms of just relaxing into that part of the pandemic in the sense that it is so nice. Like, I feel like we've all recalibrated to staying up a little later, sleeping later. The kids obviously wake up when they wake up. So what and I know that there are larks and that we all are a slightly different imprint of how we engage with the world. But in an idealized, in an ideal state, how many hours would be be sleeping in order to not become sleep deprived? And then also, can you recover from sleep deprivation? Can you can you make it up? Sure. I like to think about sleep in terms of not just hours of sleep, but in the quality of sleep. And in fact, with any sleep situation, I, uh, when I talk to a patient or anybody describes their sleep, I think of sleep in four dimensions. I think about the amount of sleep, obviously, the quality of the sleep, the timing of the sleep, and your state of mind. You're looking forward to sleeping. Thinking just about the, the amount of sleep is, is not the right way of thinking about it. Parents often will, will say, how many hours should my kids sleep? When I tell a parent that I work in sleep, they almost immediately ask, how many hours can my child sleep? And again, they don't ask how much oxygen the kid has to breathe. They ask about sleep hours. What they're really asking is how many hours can I be away from this child is what I think they're asking. Because the only break you get from being a parent is when your kid is sleeping. So the main thing is you should wake up feeling refreshed. I took care of a three-year-old who came in as a patient with his mother like any other child. And I said, "What? Well, you know, how can I help you? What's going on? And this three-year-old looked me in the eye and said, sleeping makes me tired. And the mom said, I don't know what's mm-hmm. wrong. He sleeps more than all his friends. He already, his friends have stopped napping. He's still napping. No matter how much sleep, he's always tired. And he sleeps a lot. Well, he had big tonsils. So the quality of his sleep was bad because he couldn't breathe. He was choking. But his body compensated by giving him more hours of sleep. But the more he slept, the less he was breathing, the worse he was feeling. So mm. in general, you want to think about the hours of sleep in, in context of waking up feeling refreshed. If somebody tells me that no matter how much sleep they get, they're, they're still tired then I know something is wrong, right? You should not wake up feeling tired. You should wake up feeling refreshed. Uh, in general, for an adult, we try to say around seven hours of sleep, seven and a half hours of sleep. With kids, we go usually for closer to nine hours of sleep. With teenagers, it's kind of a special situation because as the body's growing, they may have increased need for sleep. 
and the first evidence, by the way, if you're trying to figure out what about that's in general, but what about me? People always think of themselves as being special. You know, I'm different. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I am different. Okay. <laughs> well, the the way to tell if you're getting the right amount of sleep is you have a tendency to sleep in on weekends. Again, seven or eight year olds, little kids don't sleep in on weekends. The first evidence of not getting enough sleep is the tendency to tend to catch up on weekends, which biologically doesn't make any sense. We don't do that with food. We don't tell our kids, hey, Monday through Friday, I'm gonna starve you. Saturday and Sunday, eat all you like, because come Monday, I'm gonna start starving you again. But that's what we do. That's why the idea of catching up makes no biological sense. You can't catch up on your sleep. It's just hard to do because the lifestyle reasons that led you to be sleep deprived are still there. But in experimental situations where they do this, where they keep somebody awake on purpose, it usually takes about five days or so to catch up one, uh, for one day of lack of sleep. So if you, for example, skip sleep completely, zero sleep, usually within five, you will have some remnants of, of residual sleepiness that can be measured for about five days. That's why you can't really catch up five days of lack of sleep with a two-day weekend. Biologically, it doesn't make sense. If you normally, let's say, sleep eight hours a night and, and you skip those eight hours completely, if you go to sleep the next night, Will you sleep 16 hours instead? No, the body won't let you do that. It's not biologically safe to do that, to sleep 16 hours in a row. The body may let you sleep maybe 10 hours over several days to catch up on the sleep that you've been missing. Right. No, that makes sense. And so in terms of, one, I want to sort of go into sleep disorders and sleep issues. But what are, you know, I know that sleep is they're connected to Alzheimer's, et cetera. It's like the brain is cleaned, right? Like what are the other functions, essential functions that happen when we're sleeping? So the the, the hypothesis that, that you're discussing or the theory you're discussing actually has yeah. a cool name. It's called glymphatics. So the word lymphatics with an L, add the letter G in front of it, glymphatics. And for a long time, we've known the body, our peripheral system has lymphatic system. It's a cleaning of, of, of the blood or lymph glands swollen glands in your neck when you're sick. That's what our spleen's involved in. So there's this lymphatic system. But people said, well, where's the lymphatic system for the brain? And it wasn't until relatively recently that somebody found there may be something going on with this. And the lymphatic system is the idea, the glia, G-L-I-A, the glia, the support cells to help our neurons. We think about the neurons as the main parts of the brain, but they have an army of support cells. Like now for our, our podcast, we need to have support people helping us, right? Lauren is on the call. So the glia are, are, are the support for, for the neurons. And one of the things that happens is these little neurons, they're, they're touching each other, excuse me, the glia are touching each other. And then uh, water's filtering through, the spinal fluid is filtering through that and cleansing out and flushing out the neurons. But the neurons are hardcore electrical systems. They have waste products like you would expect in any kind of electrical system. There's waste products that accumulate. And what happens when you fall asleep is that the little glia cells shift in positions and then they allow the spinal fluid to pass faster through the system, I think by a factor of 10. So you end up actually flushing out the brain of impurities. And there's thinking, but it's not been proven yet, but there's thinking that perhaps one of the basic functions of sleep is this metabolic cleansing of the brain or flushing out of the brain. So that's probably a part of it. And perhaps, and again, it's a big perhaps, perhaps conditions like Alzheimer's disease and other serious neurogenic disorders will turn out to be conditions where these waste products are not being flushed out properly. In general, when people talk about the functions of sleep, people, the simplest thing people can say is that it rest, it's restorative. It restores us. 
But then when you ask what's it actually restoring, people's kind of scratch their heads. There are thoughts that one of the things that's happening is that when you are awake, their brain is consuming a lot of, of, of sugar. Most, I think, I believe 20% of our food supply is consumed by our brain, and the brain weighs much less than that percentage-wise. So the brain is a very energy-hungry uh, organism, and the rest- and the currency for the brain to use sugar is called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And anybody who remembers from high school biology, ATP is the main currency that the body uses for energy stores. And by the way, ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is made by our mitochondria, which all comes from our mothers. So I often tell my students that the best gift our mothers ever gave us is our mitochondria. All our mitochondria come from our mothers. So the mitochondria make this ATP, and when the brain is using up energy, the byproduct of ATP is this thing called adenosine. So as you're chewing up your uh, ATP, all this adenosine builds in our brains, and the more adenosine is in our brain, the sleepier we get. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because the most active, uh, the most consumed psychoactive substance on the planet is caffeine, and caffeine works basically, keeps you awake because it blocks your adenosine receptors in your brain. So that's why the brain makes you think you can stay awake because it's blocking your adenosine. So that's one of the functions of sleep, we think, is the replenishing of our ATP stores. And the imbalance, more ATP is made when you're sleeping than when you're awake. So you can think of sleeping like recharging the battery. But the problem with that theory is it it flies out, it's destroyed when you think about dreaming. Because when the brain is Mm -hmm. dreaming, which is about 20-25% of the time we're asleep, about two hours every night, in order for the brain to dream, it uses more energy than, than than, than, than you would expect it to. For, for you to hear my voice right now, my voice is being transmitted and the sound waves are bouncing off your inner your eardrum and that's how the sound is being made. So it's physically reacting to the energy I'm giving you to your, for you to hear my voice. But if you were to have a dream with my voice in it, hopefully this doesn't happen to any of the listeners, doesn't happen to them, but if you had a dream with my voice in it, you got to create that sound in your brain so it requires more energy. So mm-hmm. the dreaming brain actually is more active in some, uh, sometimes than the awake brain. So that's one idea is that sleep is about restoring energy, but it doesn't explain dreaming. So another idea behind this is that dreaming may be a special form of thinking that the brain is using to enhance memory production. So a lot of ideas about sleep now are related to consolidation of memories, that it's important for the brain to remember things, so it's remember for the brain to forget some things. You shouldn't remember every single thing you've ever heard because your brain would be cluttered, right? It would be you know, like, like somebody who's just you know, hoarding everything, it's inefficient. So the brain has to reorganize the information that it has. And ultimately what the brain's main function is, is to help us stay alive. And it helps us adapt to the outside world. So, so our environment is always changing. You need, a, you need a, a organ that can deal with a new situation that it's never had before. And it does handle this new situation by looking back on its prior experiences. So you need this system of retrieval and processing to do this. Ultimately, I think what's gonna end up happening is that when they figure out the biology of creativity, because creativity is a biological function, just like breathing and eating. So there's got to be a neurophysiology to being creative, that when that biology is a mechanism of creativity is, is uh, figured out, how do we make tools, how do we solve problems, it's probably going to tie into how dreaming works and sleeping works too. So sleeping has this side of it related to restoring of our brains for metabolism. But there's also in part, other parts of our body seem to take advantage of it. So our kidneys function differently, our heart functions differently. So there seems to be an overall restorative process that happens with sleeping. That's why people often equate sleeping with resting. 
But resting and sleeping are not exactly the same thing. Because if you did 100 jumping jacks, you might feel tired, not going to feel sleepy. Not the same thing. So sleeping is going to have lots and lots of different functions, we think. And it makes sense. Something as ubiquitous as sleep will have different functions in different animals. So the sleep in in us as humans will be different than the sleep in, for example, a bat. The, the, they people ask what animal sleeps the longest. It turns out there's this brown bat that sleeps, I think, like 19 or 20 hours. And you think, well, what's special about this bat? And it, it may be that simply there's no point in it being awake because the food source is unavailable. And if it's out and about moving around, it could be attacked. So sleeping may be safety for them because they're in a the cave and they can spend 20 hours sleeping. So the, the function of sleep probably fluctuates in different animals for different reasons. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. What's the genetic component of it? Are we all born with sort of the basic, same basic ability to get high quality sleep and then it's conditioned out of us and disorders emerge? Or are some of us more inclined to sleep disorders than others? And then what are the primary factors, both for kids and for for adults? There are definitely genetics to this. In 2017, the Nobel Prize in uh, physiology was for something called the clock genes for circadian rhythms and it's for the genetics of how we determine time inside our head there's actually a little piece of the brain tissue that's main functions to let us know what time it is as social creatures we need to know what time it is one of us one-on-one against a lion the lion is going to win but a tribe of people can take on any lion. So if we're social creatures, we have to be able to hunt and gather at the same time. And if we left the safety of the village at some point, and knowing that the sun comes and goes and it fluctuates with the seasons, needed a system in our brains to predict sunrise and sundown. So this part of the tissue, this part of the, uh, our bodies has been worked out. And the genes for it have been worked out to, to a large extent. That's why I got the Nobel Prize. And it's actually kind of a, it's, it's kind of a fun system because as it goes from the uh, DNA to the messenger RNA to the protein, it takes an amount of time. That's how the clock ticks, is in the cycle of building these proteins who feed back onto the DNA of itself. So it's a circular process. There's fluctuations within this DNA. So some of us are going to be more morning people, some of us are going to be more night people. It's a real thing. It's, it's not just a, a tendency. There's a real tendency for teenagers to stay awake later at night. Just like there's a real tendency for people who are older to go to bed earlier. Beyond age 50, people tend to go start going to sleep a little bit earlier. It's harder to stay up late as you get older compared to when you were younger. So there are biological tendencies to this. And mm-hmm. there are other biological tendencies with regard to sleep disorders. For example, there's a disease called narcolepsy, uh, which people seem to have a pre- genetic predisposition to. And narcolepsy is an interesting disease because what's happening is that people are combining a wake world with dreaming world. So the, so usually our entire lives, if you think of it, every minute you've been awake, you've either been awake, you've been sleeping, or dreaming. We think of dreaming as a distinct subtype of sleep. So your whole life, you've either been awake and in, in non-REM sleep or in REM sleep. And there are these borders between these three different states that the brain distinguishes and slides from one state to the other, just like water can be vapor or ice. And in narcolepsy, those borders get blurred out. 
and there's a genetic tendency for this, by the way. So the person starts to dream when they're awake. The most common yeah. sleep disorder we deal with, well, the number one disorder we have is people not getting enough sleep, not, not making a sleep a priority in their lives. They call that behaviorally induced insufficient sleep syndrome, B-double-I-S-S. It's a funny term, behaviorally induced insufficient sleep syndrome, which is something that other animals don't do. If you go to the zoo and animals have nothing to do, they'll sleep. But they'll um, sleep on, stay awake on purpose like we do. But the other very common disorder that's more likely to show up at the sleep lab is going to be people with insomnia. Insomnia is trouble either falling asleep or trouble staying asleep to the point their body the next day. Undoubtedly, there's people listening to this podcast that have insomnia. And there's definitely genetics to insomnia. I mentioned earlier that women are more likely to have insomnia than men. The other thing we do with a lot is obstructive sleep apnea. Obstructive mm-hmm. sleep apnea is a condition where the brain, think about it, the brain says, I'd rather sleep than breathe. So the brain starts to continue sleeping when it stops breathing. So up to a point, sleeping is more important than oxygen to the brain. So in obstructive sleep apnea, people will stop breathing during the night but keep sleeping and end up choking. And it has a lot of ramifications, including people dying in their sleep to having heart attacks, uh, hypertension, strokes, just being sleepy, not being less attentive, car accidents. The first sign, by the way, of anybody not getting enough sleep for whatever reason is just waking up feeling grumpy. People who, who don't get enough sleep tend to be irritable when they wake up and have trouble paying attention. So if you know anybody who's inattentive and grumpy in the morning, chances are there's something wrong with their sleep. So we have sleep apnea, we have uh, insomnia. The other thing that we'll do with, which is a little bit less common, but very strongly genetic, is restless leg syndrome. Restless leg syndrome is a condition where people have this creepy, crawly feeling. It's hard to describe this urge to move their legs, and it runs strongly in families. If you have one family member who has it, if you have it, there must be somebody else in your family who has it. And it's so strong that if I see a child with it who I'm not sure, because sometimes kids can't give you a clear story. Some kids, they, they can't verbalize properly what they're feeling when they're very young. But if I suspect it, I'll ask the biological mother if they had it during pregnancy, because restless legs often flares during pregnancy. And in fact, I have met women who tell me they can tell they're pregnant because the legs start to bother them. So if flares in pregnancy, then it, then it, it dies down, then you know they have this tendency towards it. I had a, a mm-hmm. two-year-old girl, I think, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know her, remember her exact age. She, she might have been three years old, but she'd immigrated from China, had been adopted, and she couldn't speak English, and we didn't have any birth history available. And the loving parents that adopted her from China were saying this kid was sleeping really horrible. And whenever they tried sleeping with her, it was hard to sleep next to. When somebody has trouble sleeping, you think, oh, well, that's psychological. If it's a child, you sleep with the person. And if they get better, then it's probably behavioral. But if they sleep horribly, even if you're next to them, then it's more likely to be something physical. And sure enough, that's what happened with this little girl. She had really just bad restless legs that hadn't been identified yet. So when the parents, when the adopted parents tried to sleep with her, she was still moving around and uncomfortable. When she finally learned to speak English, one of the first words she ever said was itchy because she liked to explain to people that her legs were itching her at night. Mm. And these kids often will when they're four or five years old, will say that they have growing pains is how they're described. And growing shouldn't really hurt, but they're described as having growing pains. And these kids, along with the kids with sleep apnea, the kids who snore are more likely to be identified and misidentified as having ADD. Because I mentioned earlier that kids who don't get enough sleep have trouble paying attention. If your child is not getting adequate sleep, not, not, don't think about the hours of sleep. Think about the overall quality of sleep, not just the hours. And, the, and your child is still having trouble learning it's a possibility to have a sleep disorder that's been missed. But if instead you just go by what they're telling you in school, they're going to say, well, he's Johnny is not, fo- is not focused. Because when kids 
are sleepy, they look for something to do. They fidget, they move around. And if you give anybody who's sleep deprived a stimulant, give anybody a cup of coffee who's sleep deprived, of course you're gonna respond. So they'll tell you that, oh, Johnny's doing better on their Ritalin, great. Maybe it is ADD, but maybe it's also Johnny didn't have a good sleep, had a sleep disorder and that's why they're not responding to the use of Ritalin. So some of the other things to think about, but most sleep disorders run in families. So one of the things I tell people is little coconuts don't fall far from the tree, right? My family's from the Caribbean. So it's unusual to have a single member of your family with a sleep problem. So whenever I see a child, I ask about the parents. Whenever I see a, a parent, an adult, I ask about their kids. And if they don't have any kids, I want to know about their siblings, brothers and sisters, cousins. It's very, very unusual to you, you be the only one with a sleep problem. Interesting. I want to talk about sort of the interventions. It's, it's funny, my my oldest son complains about growing pains all the time. And he's he sleeps with an open mouth. And he also is is a bedwetter. How old is and your son? So seven. So what are you going to do today? You're going to you're going to go talk to your doctor after this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. You're... Can you hang out after? <laughs> no, this is very serious. Um, mouth breathing. And, and uh, before you answer the question, I just want to make this point, because you mentioned it. Mouth breathing leads to facial elongation. And, and again, the listeners can just look up the word facial elongation, face getting longer. Mouth breathing was always associated for over 100 years. Old medical textbooks describe mouth breathing children as having deadened intellect and not being smart. And, mm-hmm. and nothing about your particular child. But in general, if you're a mouth breather, it screws up the shape of your face and their face starts to get longer. It's going to mess up their dentition. They're going to need braces later. But it also means they're not getting adequate air because normally when you sleep with your mouth closed, the tongue goes to the roof of your mouth and the tongue, which is a strong muscle, will mold the roof of the mouth for itself. But if you look in your seven-year-old's face, uh, if you look at your seven-year-old's mouth right now, I'll bet you that his tongue is already wider than the roof of his mouth. Mm, and if you look at his baby pictures, you're going to see that over time, if he really has a, a routine mouth breather, sleeping with his mouth yeah. breathing especially – that his face has gotten longer over time. Look at his first baby pictures. His face was rounder. And over time, it's gotten longer. That's what you're going to see. Interesting. Okay, so I'm going to follow up with this on this after. So, and then for, and do in that instance, do you start with an, like a, a dentist or do you go to a Sure, actually, I, uh, I listened to one of the earlier podcasts. And I Dr. noticed Sammy? that you had, you had a yeah, pediatric dentist. And I bet you if you were to mention to that doctor that your child is mouth breathing in their sleep, they would jump all over that. Okay. Right, it yeah, really no, affects, I, especially the, because the orthodontist often will now pick up these kids with, with, with breathing issues. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. All right. So, but for insomnia, restless leg, what are the interventions? And I know, you know, for insomnia that people will lean on sleeping pills, which just kind of affects short-term memory, right? They're not necessarily engendering well, deep sleep or what, what yeah. do you do? Well, not sleeping by itself affects your, your short-term memory. So you got to think of sleeping pills as just tools to handle the issue. The issue is not really the the sleeping. It's it's why can't you sleep? So hypnotic sleeping pills are just tools that we use to help somebody sleep in the short term. And they they can be used long term because some people have no other option. They sleep so poorly without them. There are people who have a genetic tendency towards being insomniacs for life. There's a condition called idiopathic hypersomnia. Excuse me, idiopathic insomnia. Idiopathic insomnia where they – are always been bad sleepers our whole life. Fairly rare, but it does happen. So we're not, in the, in the modern field of sleep medicine, we're not anti-medication. However, medication for sleep insomnia specifically is no longer the first-line treatment. 
currently, I, I prescribe a lot less medication than I used to. When I first started in the 90s with patients, I prescribed medication fairly routinely. Now, weeks go by and I don't prescribe any sleeping pills because now we're using, we fortunately have something better. The reason people get insomnia is because they develop habits and ways of thinking about their sleep. So if you think about this, if you're in, in a state of serenity, if everything is just perfect for sleeping, you know, your children, as a mother, you're providing them with a very safe, loving environment. They fall asleep easily, hopefully, sleep through the night, wake up, wake up refreshed. They're in serenity. But if you're in immediate danger, somebody yells fire, you're not going to get any sleep at all. You're going to stay awake completely. But what happens when you're yeah. under chronic danger? In chronic danger, to the brain, same thing as chronic stress. If you're in a chronic stress situation, what happens is you will still you will start sleeping again, but in spurts, short spurts. You may sleep for three or four hours, five. I hear number five a lot. You feel like five hours, and you, then you awake. So, what I've come to think of chronic insomnia is more of survival sleep. It's a mode of sleeping when you're in chronic danger. You're sleeping as little as possible. You're getting by with as, as light a sleep as you can. And this should make sense to your listeners because if I ask any, any of you how much sleep do you typically get, people have all kinds of numbers that they'll tell you, but they usually give you two numbers. And in your mind right now, you have probably have two numbers. If I ask you how much sleep you need, you'll tell me something like, I like to get nine, but I get by with six. Or I like to get eight, but I get by with five. You have two numbers in your head about an ideal amount and a minimum amount. And you think as long as I get my minimum amount, I'll be okay. For me, the minimum is for me is six. I like to get at least six hours of sleep, but I like to get more if I can, seven and a half or, or, or more. But I know I at least should get at least six before I start working. And this would make sense in a world where the, where the, where the seasons change that we should have variable amounts of sleep depending on the seasons. The insomnia is getting better with as little sleep as possible all the time. So I come to think of chronic insomnia as people who chipped off the system of getting by as little sleep as possible. So the right treatment currently for insomnia is called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT for insomnia. And it's really good. The evidence for it is solid. There's been a lot of studies for it. So anybody who's involved in the professional practice of sleep medicine is going to offer to chronic insomniacs cognitive behavioral therapy. And the data is good. I see people with insomnia have had it for 10, 20 years, decades of poor sleep. And if you let, teach them the new rules of cognitive behavioral therapy, after about two months, about two-thirds or more of them are now sleeping through the night, no longer taking medication for their sleep. And the cool thing is if you reach out to them a few years later and check out how they're doing, the vast majority are still sleeping fine without medication. So for insomnia, CBTI is what you should be doing for your if you're a chronic insomniac. Yes, you can use medication for occasional use. Your mother-in-law is coming to visit. You've got a plane trip. You're jet-lagged. Yes, there's a role for sleeping pills. But for most people with insomnia, we try to get them to learn to sleep without medication. So that's how we do it with them. For restless legs, restless legs is turns out to be a disease of iron metabolism. And for the brain to, to make this substance called dopamine, you may have heard of dopamine. It's a neurotransmitter. Yeah. The brain uses, dopamine, uses iron to make dopamine. And it turns out that people with restless legs are inefficient in the way they handle iron. So they tend to be low on dopamine. And the treatment for restless legs, for some people, is just to give them some iron supplements or sometimes to give them medications that replace this dopamine for them. Dopamine is what's also medications for Parkinson's disease. So the same medications that work for Parkinson's disease at a fraction of the dose, at a tiny, tiny amount, much, much smaller dose, will also work for restless leg syndrome. Also, medications like uh, that have the substance called gabapentin. There are these known neurotransmitters that we can replace people with restless legs to help them feel better. 
And once you, you offer, them with a, offer them medication, usually within a couple of days, they're much better. So they're really very happy when, when you do that to them. So that's something to do. Sometimes you'll get restless legs in people who are donating a lot of blood, for example, because they're losing iron and don't realize it. And because women as they go through pregnancy, it's a special state of iron metabolism. They're making another person. That's why we think that people with genetic tendencies towards restless legs, it flares during pregnancy a lot. So mm. some of the things to think about. That makes a ton of sense. For teenagers, I mean, you've been involved, right, in this legislation that I think it, it's passed, right, in California to mm -hmm. push back the start of school. Do you think that the pandemic is going to create any structural change in terms of this idea that kids should be starting school at like 730 in the morning? There was an editorial in the New York Times not long ago that said the jury is out. The pandemic has proven the case. A lot of kids are sleeping better now than before. Adults may be very stressed out about their work, and the pandemic has highlighted a lot of healthcare disparities. So it's a horrible, the pandemic is horrible. Having said that, some parents are noticing that their kids are sleeping better than before. The teenagers have more time to sleep now. They don't need to commute to school. They're a little bit less self-conscious, perhaps, of spending time getting ready for school. They can sleep on, they can do things on their own terms. So I'm hearing lots of reports of kids sleeping better during the pandemic, perhaps because of getting more sleep. In California, and thank you for asking, was the first state in the nation that passed a law to protect the sleep health of teenagers by saying schools, uh, public high schools and junior high schools should start no earlier than eight o'clock for junior high schools and 8.30 for high schools. In part is because the kids have been sleep deprived for a long time. And the data has shown that if we can provide children with later start times, they do better in school. So it's a healthier thing. There's less car accidents, for example, less sports injuries. Kids are just sharper, less grumpy. There should not be any need to convince people that sleeping is a good thing. And in California, they have a three-year implementation of this new law. There's talk of perhaps changing the, these rules when, when, uh, because of the pandemic, and we don't know when kids are going to be going back in the classroom. So there's a lot of uncertainty around this. But the science is solid that providing teenagers with more sleep, they'll take advantage of it. There's a lot of skepticism we deal with teenagers. And when this research was first came out in the early, uh, about 25 years ago, people used to say, well, if the school starts later, the kids are just going to stay up later. And you can be cynical and, and skeptical about this. But if you look at the science, what's been measured is if you tell the kids school starts an hour later, they get about 40 more minutes of sleep every night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they stay up a little bit later. But if you any of you listening to this, if you got 40 more minutes of sleep every day, 40 more minutes of sleep, that's a lot. You feel better. Whenever you deal with any teenagers, whoever has teenagers in their lives, the data from the Center for Disease Control, the CDC tells us that about 75%, 75% of kids, teenagers aren't getting enough sleep or getting less than the recommended amount. If we were telling you that CDC said that 75% of kids weren't getting enough food, we'd have telephones for this. It'd be, you know, celebrity thing and yeah. people just shrug their shoulders. Teenagers are sleep deprived, and when you're sleep deprived, you tend to be grumpy, inattentive, and also more prone to car accidents. So it's a good thing to do. It also, even sadly, um, we now know that lack of sleep it leads to increased impulsivity, and lack of sleep is considered to be an independent risk factor for suicidal behavior, which is one of the most common causes of death in teenagers, sadly. And 
all these things can improve with sleep. So you can have healthier lives if we get better sleep. And that's the good news. It's the cheapest bang for the buck you can get. Just get more sleep. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And you think about all these solving many of these really difficult health issues upstream. And if we still don't quite understand the mechanism, but we know that the cleansing, that there's an, a very essential health impact from sleep and we're shortening it, then are we just, is this, is this part of the reason that we have such a huge amount of chronic disease in this country? Sure. Um, there's no doubt that sleeping is a good thing for, for the body. There should not be any need convincing. In fact, when you talk about when you rate a hospital, how big a hospital is, you describe it with the number of beds it has. That's, that's how you describe a hospital, the number of beds it has. So definitely sleep is tied into our health. Our immune system reacts that if you, when you get any kind of infection, one of the first things that the body will do is generate chemicals that'll make us sleepy. So biologically, when we are sick, the brain, our bodies want us to go to sleep, get into bed. It's not a psychological thing. It's built into it. It's, it's how the body restores itself and heals itself. That's what it's about. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rafael Paleo. To learn more, check out the stories we've done with him on the Goop site and keep an eye out for his book, How to Sleep, coming out in December. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.